Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Barton Fink. A renowned New York playwright is enticed to California to write for the movies and discovers the hellish truth of Hollywood. Ooh. It's yet another entry into the Hollywood is a Nightmare film series. I mean, yeah, that's like a whole, like, collection at this point. <laughs> mm -hmm. You are an enigma to me about this movie. I don't know how you feel. Oh, um, there's a lot I feel like I like about it, but I feel here. Okay, the thing about Cohen films in general is that they don't really have resolutions. They just kind of like, we're going to go on this journey. Fine. Cool. I can enjoy that. But the journey has to be interesting and felt like it has to make it worth it the journey along the way so that when you get to the end and there's no resolution or there's no like tie it up way or even just a cliffhanger to make yeah to make it all have been worth it and sometimes it's great burn after reading love it like you're going on this whole journey nothing happens yeah it's great it's but it's so entertaining this is one of those ones where there's some stuff that's so cool i feel like it just fell apart at the end See, I don't feel like it falls apart at the end. I feel like it takes a little too long to make it make its point. I'll I just, love the way it ends. I don't. There's again, there's so much I like about it, but I feel like it falls apart, and then it leaves me going, "What well, I just watch." Well, that is the main complaint about the Coen Brothers, and I, I mean, I, what I will say is this is their most deeply personal movie. Mm -hmm. Like I, I. I do think that people have very few people, I think, hate this movie, though some did at the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's a movie, though, that either people are going to be enamored with or people are, are going to have the reaction you did of, huh? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that's because unlike a lot of their other movies where you're on a journey and you don't quite know where the end point is, but you're enjoying that part of it because the story is so interesting. This one is so deeply mm -hmm. internal to them mm -hmm. in terms of the subject, not necessarily like the plot points. They're making all of this shit up hardcore just based off their knowledge of the 30s and 40s in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. But all of the deep investigations of writers is so just them projecting onto the script. Mm-hmm. And it makes for really fascinating moments and stuff. But to me, I think it it suffers from it just lets the point go on a little too long. Mm -hmm. And I think that the ending doesn't punch the way it should because we're a little fatigued by the time we get there. But I don't know. I mean, it, it, two different reactions to it. I do think, though, it's a fascinating movie for them. And it's also fascinating because it's like just just before they became the capital Cohen capital brothers, which arguably that's Fargo. That's the mm -hmm. movie that made them like household names. Mm -hmm. And then they went on to do all this stuff. This is still early for them. Mm -hmm. it, it's less of a polished Cohen brothers movie and more of them figuring out their style still. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think we both agree. It's, it's a it's a bit of a mixed bag of a movie. I was worried that you hated it, but I I I like that we're both kind of in agreement on that fact. Yeah, no, I didn't hate it, um, but it was kind of like a path to nothing. Yeah, uh, well, but not and not in a in a super enjoyable way. Like, and the not in a Lebowski way. No, exactly. 
There you go. It's- even even Burn After Reading has its plot points. The Big Lebowski is a film that literally goes to no person no conceivable actual resolution or end Mm -hmm. and it is thoroughly enjoyable for that it is the best version that they've done Mm -hmm. and i would say the best dramatic version is no country for old men yes where it doesn't really have a resolution but they're working with an author who's who also specifies in that and adapting that sure and so they take those dramatic endpoints to their highest levels well yeah and and that story is specifically the journey exactly and part of what makes that story great is that there isn't a definitive resolution mm-hmm. it's great that's that and that suits them so well yes yeah, and that was a film that I had no interest in seeing. We were like, we have to see it. It's like, fine. And I was like, this is a good movie. Cool. I had a headache, so I didn't have as good of an impression as I normally would have with the movies. But um, well, that is how that was my experience with There Will Be Blood. So. See, same year, and I thought that was the greatest movie I'd ever seen up to that point. So I, I still think it's a great movie, but it is not the best. But for now, let's talk about Barton Fink. The budget for this movie was nine million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's about. Uh, just about twenty million in today's money. It only grossed six million one hundred and fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. So that's thirteen, about fourteen million dollars. Now, its poor performance was likely due to where they placed it in the release schedule. Hmm. This movie was released in August nineteen ninety one. Oh yeah, August is where movies go to die. August is still in the heat of blockbuster season in 1991. Well, no, exactly. So if you are not the biggest bait, we just, we're just going to push it out. That was where indie films go to just get there two weeks so they can qualify for whatever. That weekend, it was up against Hot Shots, nope. Doc Hollywood, nah. and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Oh, fuck. Yeah, you're done. You're done. You're done. See the returns for Avatar, the way of water. I wanted to be mad at Jim Cameron so much and look at him. He was absolutely right. He's a shrewd businessman and he and he's a visionary. He can't write a story. He can write an outline. He should not be in charge of dialogue. That's a requirement. No dialogue for him. I don't know if you put him in in charge of an action thriller. He's fucking top notch. Let's be clear. Whatever. Like I said, he can be in charge of the outline. These are the plot points I want to hit. Yeah. Somebody else write the thing. What happens exactly? Now, critics were openly hostile to Barton Fink as well. They disliked its enigmatic plot and ambiguous ending. That's the Cohen brothers. Yeah. Yes. Like, I'm not going to get mad at them for that. However, it swept Khan. Mm-hmm. This is the winner of the Palm Door, hmm. Best Director, and Best Actor for John Turturro. Hmm. It also unanimously won the Palm d'Or from the jury. Mm-hmm. And I will say what that speaks to me is that this movie resonates very, very deeply with filmmakers. Mm-hmm. That doesn't shock me in the least because Khan is probably the purest distillation. And especially for movies like this, which are, you know, more of an artistic statement, you're getting a, a panel of peers in the more artistic side of movies to come in and judge as to what the best movie of the year is. That's the mm-hmm. point of Khan. And so I get why this movie would win that and then not mm-hmm. be the most lauded movie in the Oscar season, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that kind of movie. And again, I think it, it, it does strike a nerve, especially for people who write, for people who 
you know, think about writing and think about creating a lot. It there's a lot of really great nuggets and tidbits that come out of it. Mm -hmm. It's just that the story as a whole doesn't quite fit together. <laughs> but I, I get why the con crowd would be desperately into this movie. Oh, I mean, they are such suckers for industry films. Yeah, and also this is an industry film that really does take a unique approach. True, yes. And, and this will get referenced later a little bit, but you know, The Day of the Locust does a lot of the similar pontificating as this movie, mm -hmm. but does it in a much more normal, conventional way. Yeah. And that's part of why it doesn't work very well, mm. because it, it's just grotesque without being fascinating. This movie actually thinks about some of that symbolism. Mm-hmm. And like tries to make it a point instead of just being shocking for the sake of being shocking. And uh, surprising nobody here, this is one of Charlie Kaufman's favorite films. Oh, yeah. The man who has probed the deepest recesses of his own problems and sadness and feelings through mm -hmm. cinema decided that this movie was a big inspiration for him. Yeah, no, that's not surprising at all. Mm hmm. All right, well, let's talk about our writing. And for our writers, we have both Joel and Ethan Cohen. Hmm. The Cohen brothers are more typically always working together as writers. Before this, they wrote Blood Simple, Crime Wave, which they did not direct, and then everything else they did, Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. And yes, we have talked about them on the show before. Hmm. After this, the Hudsucker Proxy, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Gambit, Inside Lewin Davis, Unbroken, Bridge of Spies, Hail Caesar, Suburbicon, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Recently, the two brothers split. That's been a sort of a public thing. Joel went on to write 2021's The Tragedy of Macbeth. And Ethan is working on his own unspecified project at the moment. Hmm. What do we think of the writing of this movie? I must say it's not great. Interesting. Because of how it leaves me feeling. Like, there could have been so much more with the Steve Buscemi character. Chet. With Chet. Like, and I kept feel, feeling like they were signaling to, like, Chet standing for something. Like, it was, like, C-H-E-T. Because of the way it like the way he kept spelling it, the way he kept reminding, it was just like, it's pointing to something and then it doesn't go anywhere. And then just like how uneasy Barton is in the room, which like I get. And like, I totally like, totally saw like the whole wallpaper thing had to do with the, with the John Goodman character. And like, okay, I totally see that happening. I was like, but where's the rest of it? I like there, there just could have been so much more. Like, I honestly feel like they really should have made this a twist. And like Barton Fink is, imagining all of this and he's like in an asylum or like this turns out to just be his screenplay that he writes for Hollywood because he doesn't know what else to do like there should I feel like this is there there were just moments that should could have been so much more so I feel like this is a film of missed opportunities well it is and then to me it isn't like I I don't disagree with you but then I think if any of those things happened it wouldn't be a Coen Brothers movie mm -hmm. like I agree that those buttons sound really good and would be really mm -hmm. satisfying. And also Joel and Ethan would never write that in their lives. Yeah. And so I think if it was going to be a more successful Coen Brothers movie, that's where I come from of like, we spend a lot longer than we need to when we get the point very clearly that 
Barton is completely out of his fucking depth mm-hmm. and is so self-absorbed that he's missing the darkness around him. It almost needs a more Soderbergh approach mm-hmm. of like, he is blissfully unaware of all the horrible shit going on around him until it's too fucking late. And then it hits home so hard when he when the fires are blazing and he walks out of the hotel. Mm-hmm. And you see him and he's like, oh, that's what I'm left with. Mm-hmm. It just it doesn't punch the right way for what those guys write. Mm-hmm. And I think they're. I think it's just they put too many ideas into the movie. Like I said, it's it's so it it in many ways is kind of them just kind of emptying their brains onto the page, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to a point. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then there's so many of those ideas that that's why the loose threads are left there, and so the missed opportunities are them putting too much into it, not reining it back in. Mm-hmm. I, that to me is the only problem is I'm just like, I don't, I don't believe Joel and Ethan would actually do that, though. They don't like pat endings. Yeah. And, and they're doing a whole lot of showing and not telling for a lot of references that are kind of specific. Yeah. And that that makes it hard for anybody who's not versed in what they're talking about to kind of get where they're going. Mm-hmm. Then they do something like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where it's such specific references the whole time right. through. But you don't care, and it mm-hmm. makes you want to go look it all up. Sure. And they just hadn't perfected that yet. Yeah, this doesn't have anything like that. It no. just, I think it's a film with missed opportunity. I hate to say self-absorbed because it is fascinating, and it's not just navel-gazing. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of that going on. Sure. They're so wrapped up in their idea that they're kind of missing the point of the audience seeing mm-hmm. They were writing their prior project, Miller's Crossing, which is supposedly another great movie. It's a mafia movie by them. Mm. When they were suffering from writer's block. Oh, okay. They then went to go see a trashy B movie, 1987's Baby Boom. Mm-hmm. And then out of that, just decided to dive into writing this. Mm. They're just like, we have total writer's block. Well, let's write about our writer's block. Many of the figures are referencing or very specifically tied to actual real life figures. Mm-hmm. Specifically, Barton Fink is an avatar and an actual nom de plume of leftist playwright and writer Clifford Odets. Mm. He was the inspiration for this character, but he was famously extroverted and sociable with tons of friends. He had a very active love life. He was the exact opposite of Barton Fink in the movie. Uh, But Odets is most famous for being one of the first American writers to work with Stanislavski's acting systems and writing based on specifically social issues. If you've ever heard of the play Waiting for Lefty, that was his work. Okay. So he was very much, you know, interested in portraying working class people to help organize workers and labor. His work, of course, fell out of fashion in the early 40s with the Red Scare, uh, leading him into screenwriting. Hmm. W.P. Mayhew, on the other hand, John Mahoney's character, is based on William Faulkner, who, along with his incredibly famous novels, uh, he's known as a literary figure, did write a lot for Hollywood. And his first screenplay credit was Flesh, which was a wrestling movie. As well, when Barton visit Mayhew's office, the name of the movie he's working on is Slave Ship, which is a real film from 1937 that Faulkner got story credit for. Faulkner, like Mayhew, was a prodigious drinker. 
He wrote 50 screenplays between 1932 and 1954, and his mistress and ghostwriter was based on Faulkner's own mistress, Meta Carpenter, who was another script supervisor in Hollywood. Hmm. So again, they're putting a whole bunch of this history and backstory into it, but they're not giving us enough to buy into the story without knowing that. Hmm. It's a little bit of Kubrick rule. Yeah. And I hate to say that about these guys because they're really good. And even this movie has its moments. But Kubrick rule, man. Yeah. (laughs) Got to bring us along on the journey with you. Oh, yes. And if you happen to not remember or you're new here, the Kubrick rule is if I need context to understand your movie, your movie sucks. Mm -hmm. Named for one Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) And there are degrees in this one. I would put it at a milder degree. (laughs) Sure. Carl E. Munt, the alter ego, Madman Munt, uh, that was an actual senator from South Dakota, the state neighboring the Cohen's home of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. He served while the Cohen's grew up and was the vice chairman of HUAC under Joe McCarthy. So he specifically helped destroy the livelihoods and lives of numerous Hollywood figures in the late 1940s and mm-hmm. early 1950s, which, if you know that, really transforms that character in a symbolic way. Mm-hmm. Barton's fixation on the stain of his ceiling is a reference to Flannery O'Connor's short story, The Enduring Chill, in which a failed writer with no life or meaning or relationships is convinced he is dying, only to learn he has a chronic condition that will cause recurring pain for years and years. Hmm. Which I will say, this movie does feel like a Flannery O'Connor story. I don't Have you ever know. read any of, any of no. her work? Like No. Meadows' final speech was written at the beginning of the writing process, so the finale was completely in their head before they had any other story elements. And finally, many critics have noticed similar elements to Nathaniel West's 1939 novel, The Day of the Locust. Hmm. However, unlike that, unlike the sort of faithful retelling from the 70s, this one opts for a more symbolic imagery type vision for it, Hmm. which I think is a better way to retell that. I still want to read that book, though. It sounds fascinating. All right, let's talk about our directors. Okay. Credited for directing, as it always was, is Joel Cohen. Mm. Uncredited is Ethan Cohen. Before this, they directed... You know what? I'm not even going to go through this. They directed almost everything they ever fucking wrote. They're Mm -hmm. auteurs. Like, (laughs) come on. Uh, Joel, of course, directed The Tragedy of Macbeth in 2021. Ethan just finished up a documentary about Jerry Lee Lewis and is working on his untitled project. Mm. What do we think of the directing of this movie? It's very good. Their directing always has a very distinct point of view. Um, Not that it's always the same, but like, I don't see them doing a ton of like tracking shots. They're very into odd close-ups. And people moving in and out of the frame. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't hate it. But there's also like, they have so, they they also have a very big emphasis on the environment. So like the wallpaper is very specific in this hotel. And it's like, <laughs> you know, they agonized over that. Like between that and the carpet, like that was hours upon hours of conversation between these two men. And that's fine. I appreciate the attention to detail. Um, it's, yeah, it's just very specific, but it's good. It, this is where things shine through right Mm -hmm. and it does make sense why the screenplay did not get anything at con (laughs) it was the directing that won fair like the vision is outstanding Mm -hmm. because yes there's some problems yes it's overbaked 
in terms mm-hmm. of writing and script, but man, do they direct the hell out of it. Yeah. And I mean, top notch, just all the framing, all the way they decide to do the shots, the way they decide to use the colors, not just with the hotel, but then how bright they make it inside the studio. Mm-hmm. And like, there's 85 different primary colors. And then they put him back in the hotel and it's just disgusting. Um, you know, and then just the choices of like the picture in the room to frame right at the end, mm-hmm. which you know is coming, but my God, it's so earned <laughs> after all of this torture that he's put himself through mm-hmm. to then see this. And, you know, it's not a, it's not a perfect movie, but there. It's such a flashpoint of seeing like all the great stuff they were about to do because they immaculately directed, you know, that that three run with Fargo, Lebowski and O Brother. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just perfection in how they directed those. And in their best moments, that's what really stands out more than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, even a movie like Hail Caesar, which was not great, but visually it's stunning to watch. And yeah. so... And I think that's that's always their strong point, even when they don't have the best story to go with. So mm-hmm. um, and you are you are absolutely right about the hotel. Mm-hmm. The design of the hotel Earl used dominant colors of green and yellow chosen by the Coens to suggest putrefaction, the decay of corpses. Mm-hmm. The hotel is constantly hot and moist with mosquitoes around, which is not common to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. This means that the entire concept is one of a swamp. Though Joel almost wanted it to have the feeling of a ghost ship, where Fink would, quote, notice signs of the presence of other passengers without ever laying eyes on any, unquote. Mm-hmm. In the end, they intended all of this as a reflection of Charlie Meadows' mental state, his own personal prison. You see, I'm not wrong with, like, he's having flashes or, like, it, this is literally all in his mind. And the only... The wallpaper only peels when Charlie leaves Barton mm-hmm. Fink's room. Yep. I got that. I think that may be the other part here. If the movie was about Charlie and Barton was sort of the foil, it would probably work a little bit better. Well, if it where where it's about discovering Charlie, mm-hmm. but like it's through Barton's interaction with Charlie. Like we only ever hear any learn anything about Charlie through their interactions. That make that's interesting. Um, that's a little more episodic, and that's fine. You can do that in a film in a way that makes sense and is entertaining. But they didn't. No, they didn't do it. I also just got the pun on a wrestling picture because Barton is wrestling with his own inner turmoil of writing. But um, the Coens wanted to work with their regular cinematographer Barry Sonnenfeld, but he was a little busy directing The Adams Family, his debut. Oh, that thing. Yeah. So instead, who did they go to? Roger fucking Deakins. Oh, fuck. That man's the shit. What's amazing is to watch Roger Deakins, who makes such gorgeous, you know, cinema choices. And in this one, he makes such dingy choices mm-hmm. on purpose. Like all of it looks really gross. And that's uh, the point. <laughs> mm-hmm. But according to Deakins, the Coens were so precise and structured in their image of this film, they only filmed about 10 shots that didn't make the final cut. Hmm. And this is kind of a common thing. The Coens are are known for being incredibly precise in their vision, in writing, and directing. 
like I said, it doesn't always work, but they know exactly what they want to make. They know what they want, exactly what they want everybody to say and how they want to make it look like on screen. And I've never heard anything about them being like overly demanding, just that they are incredibly precise in what they want. Uh, the brothers also edited the film themselves. They credited themselves under the pseudonym Roderick Janes. Okay. I know they've they've had their issues with the unions of like them each being able to get credit and stuff. So I don't know if they make some weird decisions sometimes, but I think it's always due to like the way the guilds work. Mm -hmm. And the original concept would have had all of the residents of the Hotel Earl be elderly, handicapped or mentally unstable because all able bodied people would have joined the war effort, hmm. which would have been a timely, interesting point. But instead, thankfully, I will say they pivoted to just focus on Fink and Meadows, hmm. which makes for a much more disturbing viewing experience. All right, let's talk about our cast. Hmm, our cast. And we start with John Turturro as Barton Fink. Hmm. Before this, he was in Raging Bull, the Flamingo Kid, desperately seeking Susan to live and die in L.A., Hannah and her sisters, Gung Ho, The Color of Money, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, Miller's Crossing, and Jungle Fever. After this, Fearless, Quiz Show, Clockers, Girl Six, The Big Lebowski, He Got Game, Rounders, Cradle Will Rock, Summer of Sam, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Monkey Bone, Collateral Damage, Mr. Deeds, Anger Management, Secret Window, She Hate Me, Romance and Cigarettes, The Good Shepherd, Transformers, Margot at the Wedding, You Don't Mess with the Zohan, Miracle at St. Anna, The Taking of Pelham 123 from 2009, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, Cars 2, Transformers, Dark of the Moon, Fading Gigolo, Exodus, Gods and Kings, The Night of on Television, Transformers, The Last Night, Gloria Bell, The Name of the Rose on Television, The Jesus Rolls, The Batman, Severance, and Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio. Hmm. What do we think of John Turturro in this movie? I love John Turturro. He's never bad. He's never bad. And boy, does he embody this weirdo. Mm -hmm. I love how oblivious he is and at the same time terrified. Yeah. It's funny because he's terrified, but he has no idea what he's supposed to be terrified of. And then he's staring it straight in the face and he's just completely oblivious. I'm a writer. Celebrating the completion of something good. Do you understand that, Taylor? Beat it, Greener. Come on, buddy. It's the Navy dance. Let somebody else spin the day. Step aside, four eyes. Hey, four F. Take a hike. Suck an egg. Don't sit on a tomato. Boy. I'm a writer, you monsters. I create. I create for a living. I'm a creator. I am a creator. Screw it. This is my uniform. He's just like, I know something's off. I don't know what. Let me try to write this thing. It's not working. <laughs> like that's his that like that's the hamster wheel he's on. And the the only time he ever fucking gets it through his skull is the very end. When they when they tell him, you don't even get to work. Mm -hmm. The thing you feared the most was that it would ruin your writing. And guess what? We're taking your writing away from you. Mm -hmm. And suddenly he understands what all of this has been. And I just the whole time you buy into it. And it's and it's hard because I think Barton's one of the weaker written characters in the movie. Mm -hmm. But Totoro really makes him feel solid with a through line the whole time. He makes it watchable. And that's hard because he's in almost the entire movie mm -hmm. we have 
almost no moments without him on screen. Mm -hmm. He's John fucking Totoro and good for him for that for that best actor at con. Like he's very good. He was the first choice. There was no other choice for the Coen brothers. Mm -hmm. Right before this, he was in their their Miller's Crossing had a really memorable supporting role. And so I think, you know, this was this was the time when they went, yeah, we're going to work with him forever. Mm. Between him and Spike Lee, Spike Lee loves John Turturro. He's just good. If you get John Turturro in your movie, he's not going to be bad. Oh, no. He did take classes at a secretarial school to learn how to use a typewriter. Oh, that's cool. And then while filming, he typed out a rough outline of what would become his 2005 film Romance and Cigarettes, which the Coens would executive produce. Oh, very cool. Yeah, they did that. All right. Let's talk about the man who steals this entire movie and who I remember being my favorite part when I saw this the first time. John fucking Goodman mm-hmm. as Charlie Meadows or Madman Munt. Mm-hmm. I have his credits here. I'm not going to give them because why bother? It's John fucking Goodman. Oh, my God. I love John Goodman so much. Like, he never disappoints. And like watching this movie, especially with him looking like all baby faced here, like just like this big happy cherub. I was like, I kind of want to go watch Flintstones again. (laughs) This is like prime. So he is coming off of King Ralph. Oh, that movie was so stupid. I and saw right after this was The Babe. Okay, yeah. Where he plays Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, yeah. And, you know, this is like prime Roseanne years. Yeah. Roseanne started in 89. It's it's had enough time to become a hit. So he is in the prime of his career. And he makes a character saying Heil Hitler mm-hmm. powerful and engaging. Yeah. How do you pull that shit off? He's John fucking Goodman. The way he just holds all of that anger in the entire time mm-hmm. when Barton's interrupting him and won't listen. And then that scene of him running down the hall, which is one of the greatest fucking scenes. Yeah, it's pretty. It's so good. It's not quite Walter Subcheck from The Big Lebowski, but boy, is it pointing to it mm-hmm. of how brilliant he would be. And like, I, I think what's so fascinating about this one is that it's so much of what John Goodman is great at and does such great work with, but it's also all the levels of that. It's not just the, the silly humor and the, the charmingness. It's also the darkness mm-hmm. that he's really good at. And I don't know that a lot of people knew that about him at this point. Yeah, no, no. And so like you get all those levels, which I think this really for a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, that guy from Roseanne can like really fucking act. It's just me, Charlie. I hear it's month. Madman month. Jesus, people can be cruel. It's not my build. It's my personality.
They say I'm a madman part, but I'm not mad at anyone. Honest, I'm not. He steals the whole fucking movie for me. His whole oh. character. Like I said, if it more balance or if this is really a movie about Charlie and it's being seen through Barton, probably makes a better movie, especially with how powerful, what a powerful performance he gives. He was also the Coen brothers' first choice because, of course, mm-hmm. he was. I mean, we saw Raising Arizona. Come on. Yeah, he's I mean, he's a Coen brother favorite mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. I, well, and I think it's just their brand of dark humor matches so well to his skill set and he's able to take what's kind of a silly character in premise and turn it into something fully fleshed out Mm -hmm. which is what they love to play with yeah we then have judy davis as audrey taylor the romance interest before this she was in my brilliant career heat wave a passage to india and alice after this she was in naked lunch husbands and wives the ref children of the revolution Absolute Power, Deconstructing Harry, Celebrity, The Breakup, Marie Antoinette, Feud, She Was Hedda Hopper in the Betty Davis, Joan Crawford episodes, and Ratched. Hmm. What do we think of Judy Davis in this movie? She is like a caricature. She's definitely an archetype. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just like, you're very specific. Huh. I don't know. I think some of that's the writing. Maybe, but uh, the way it's performed, and I don't necessarily think that's a flaw but like that's that's definitely how she comes across it's flat Mm -hmm. i mean i will say the amount of just pain and fear she's under while having to deal with mayhew Mm -hmm. is is genuinely good like it's incredibly good acting but it is a little flat especially when she's there with barton and to be fair by the time we actually get a connection with her you know she's been killed by Madman Munt. So it's kind of hard. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard to judge whether she could have done better or not because you're like, yeah, but you should have been in it more, you know? Mm-hmm. Who could have been better for this role? Jennifer Jason Lee. No, no. Okay, then. Just no. Finally, let us talk about Michael Lerner as Jack Lipnick. Before this, he did a lot of television, The Candidate, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Eight Men Out, and Harlem Nights. After this, Newsies, Amos and Andrew, Blank Check, Radioland Murders, The Road to Wellville, The Beautician and the Beast, Clueless on Television, Godzilla, Celebrity, The Mod Squad, My Favorite Martian, Elf, Art School Confidential, Life During Wartime, A Serious Man, Mirror Mirror, X-Men, Days of Future Past. Okay. What do we think of Michael Lerner in this movie? I mean, he's a schmuck. (laughs) He delivers. I know, he so does. The wordiest monologues I have ever heard. Uh-huh. Perfectly. He is jumping between five different thoughts in the same monologue, and somehow he nails it. Mm-hmm. You, Eric, son of a bitch. You think you're the only writer that can give me that Barton thing feeling? I got 20 writers under contract I can ask for a think type thing from! You swell-headed hypocrites. You just don't get it, do you? You think the whole world revolves around whatever rattles inside that little kike head of yours? Get him out of my sight, Lou. I want him in town, though. He's still under contract. I want you in town, Fink, and out of my sight. Now get lost. There's a war on. Like, it's funny, because you look at this guy. He is, he is the grumpy boss from Elf. He is, yeah. Right? 
and that's what he's playing here but he's doing it with so many levels Mm -hmm. there's so many different emotions going on and again he's the polar opposite of every other thing in the movie and he's so fucking good at it oh yeah he's amazing his monologues are just in incredible character acting it's like a master class just watching him go bounce between and different feelings and stuff yeah he's so good who could have been better not an actor john milius was considered the gentleman who wrote apocalypse now directed red dawn and was the inspiration for walter from big lebowski no i don't know john milius is a big enough figure to be able to pull this off i mean fair but we heard that guy talk about Red Dawn and Apocalypse now. <laughs> Just no. Just no. Uh, Lipnick is not based on any single figure in movies. He is an amalgam of Harry Cohn, Louis B. Mayer, and Jack L. Warner, mm-hmm. the co-founders of Columbia, MGM, and Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. So they took all of that and were just like blended up into a character, which that's what you should have done with everybody else, dudes. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about some Arpons. Friend John Mahoney as W.P. Mayhew. Frazier, say anything. Ooh, he is the most brutal I've ever seen him. I love him. He is hard to watch in this movie, and I say that as a compliment. Oh, yeah. He's great. The way he mixes Southern gentlemen with just utter brutality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, it's outstanding character performance from him. Mm-hmm. Definitely nothing I've seen from him before. <laughs> And I've seen this movie, so that's weird to say. Tony Shalhoub as Ben Geisler. No, Geisler. I love Tony Shalhoub. Again, totally different from Tony Shalhoub, but so good. Um, I don't know. He's so fast talking in this one, though. He is, but the vibe is similar to um, the guy he plays in Gattaca. Mm, fair. Maybe. Like, it's a similar vibe. John Polito playing Lou Breeze. He is a favorite of the Coens. He appeared in Miller's Crossing and also in The Crow and Highlander. Hmm. He was cast with the role in mind, but he actually wanted the role of Jack Lipnick. And he was going to turn it down, but Francis McDormand had to call him and convince him to take the role. Mm-hmm. Steve Buscemi as Chet! Exclamation point. Mm-hmm. He was also cast with the role in mind. Of course he was. It's Steve Buscemi. He's been on the show a few different times. Jana Marie Hupp as the USO girl. She was Mindy on Friends with the one with Barry and Mindy's wedding. Mm-hmm. As the voice of a stage actress, Frances McDormand. The lady who does the acting and stuff and is married to Joel Cohen. Yep. Barry Sonnenfeld as a page calling for Barton Fink. Of course, he is the cinematographer who worked with the Coens and then jumped to directing with the Adams Family. And who could have been better for an Arpon? Oh. Bruce Campbell auditioned but did not get cast in a cameo role. That is a crime because he would have been fun in this. Yeah, but is who? Studio exec. Geisler? Maybe, like just someone yelling. Yeah, it would have had to be, it, it would have to be Ben Geisler. That's the only character that fits Bruce Campbell. But then we wouldn't get Tony Shalhoub. Mm-hmm. Right? So I don't know. All right, awards. Awards. This was nominated for three Academy Awards. Hmm, okay. Best costume design. Hmm, okay. Best art set decoration. Yep. Duh. And best supporting actor for Michael Lerner. Really? I think of, of all the people to nominate, that's, yeah, um, okay. 
John Goodman should have been nominated. Yeah, I would have nominated him first. I mean, we can talk about it when we look at the actual nominees here. But sure. also, we again, like I say, part of the problem here is that filmmakers loved this movie. Critics did not. Sure. And I think a lot of Academy filmmakers were like, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so again, it won the fucking Palm Door. It did just fine. Mm-hmm. This thing is studied in film school. Like they did okay for themselves. <laughs> On to trivia. Trivia. The credits give thanks to the, quote, golden throat of William Preston Robertson, unquote, who is a voice actor who never appeared on screen, but provided voice work in Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing before this. He is the actual voice of the drunken howling of W.P. Mayhew shouting, where's my honey? (laughs) The first voice we hear as an actor performing in Barton Fink's play is John Turturro's voice. Hmm. <laughs> Barton Fink's m- fictional movie studio, Capital Pictures, reappears in Hail Caesar. Yeah. That film takes place in the 1950s, featuring a meeting in the Wallace Beery conference room named after the star for whom Fink is writing. Mm-hmm. In fact, they can be seen as spiritual sequels, though they're very different movies. When Fink wakes up to the course of Audrey, it is a direct reference to the 1946 film Deadline at Dawn. In that movie, a man spends an evening with a woman, wakes up the next day, and finds out the woman was killed just after leaving, and he is determined to find out what happened. The screenwriter for that film was Clifford Odets. Hmm. Okay. The Coens mentioned in a 2009 interview that they considered making a sequel to the film. Their idea would be to portray Fink as an aging professor in the late 1960s, dealing with the fallout of betraying his friends and naming names to escape persecution from HUAC and the Second Red Scare. Holy shit, what a great movie that would be. It would, yeah. Now, I think they kind of did their version of that with Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. where they, they like scrapped the Barton Fink sequel and wound up making a movie about the 60s, but sure. <laughs> damn, what a great sequel follow-up. Mm-hmm. Turturro also expressed an interest in making a sequel in 2011. Barton Fink would be a hippie in the 70s after it was already unfashionable. (laughs) He would be the aging hippie who Mm -hmm. nobody could be along with anymore. Hmm. Among its more obvious takes on Hollywood in the movie making process, the film also references the rise of fascism in the 1930s and 40s. Fink, a Jew, is harassed by anti-Semitic detectives, both of German and Italian descent, a nod to those fascist states. And of course, Meadows shouts Heil Hitler before killing his victim, suggesting that he is a Nazi or Nazi sympathizer, and it reflects the fascist populism in the working class in the 1940s. Though the Coens denied ever having a specific allegory in mind. I think they denied that across the board. They just said that, well, fascist elements were pertinent to the setting in 1941, so he just kind of threw it in there. Mm-hmm. They're known for this. They like throw all these elements into the movie, and then they're like, well we just kind of did it we didn't think it would have any deeper meaning and i was like that's bullshit (laughs) one of the cohen's main inspirations for the character's instability in the film was inspired by noted shit heel and horrible person roman polanski his films from the 1960s and 70s were big inspiration for their movie now again he was big and influential (laughs) coincidentally roman polanski was also the head of the con film jury in 1991 The Coens were too hesitant to ask his opinion of the film, but it is safe to assume that he and the jury liked it since they unanimously voted for it for the Palme d'Or. 
Again, Roman Polanski, terrible human. But interesting note. Yeah. The ending with the bird diving into the sea was completely unintentional. It dived into the shot and the Coens thought it was such a perfect moment. They kept it. Yeah, that's funny. And boy, howdy, is it? It does look really great. At one point, Fink briefly reads from his Gideon Bible. The passage is from Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar II has a prophetic dream but cannot make sense of the image. He asks magicians and astrologers to make sense of things, but he cannot do so. This parallels Nebuchadnezzar, the novel written by Mayhew, which is referencing William Faulkner's novel Absalom, Absalom, Mm -hmm. about the civil war against Absalom's hated father, King David. During filming, the Coens were contacted by an animal rights group expressing concern about how mosquitoes were treated on set. Okay. As a nod to some more film lore, Charlie Meadows identifies as a fan of actor Jack Oakey. Oakey was a great 30s and 40s comedian remembered for playing a supporting role as a parody of Benito Mussolini in Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Again, points back to Meadows maybe being a fascist sympathizer. And finally, while Barton watches dailies for Devil on the Canvas, where we go back and forth with the wrestling pin, there is a short but clear film slate that lists Barton Fink with Joel Cohen as director and Roger Deakins as cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Is it all in his fucking head? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. That brings us to ratings. For every oh, wow. film, we have a specific ratings system. For this movie, oh boy. Are we going to go with Gideon Bibles? No. I'm going to say checks. <laughs> no, typewriters. Typewriters, okay. It's got to be typewriters. This is my movie. I have seen it before. I'm going to go three and a half. I really like the imagery. I really like the way it ends. It's just that, again, Coen Brothers movies are about the journey. Mm-hmm. And this journey isn't as solid as the other ones that they go on. Yeah. It's just not. There's so much muddled in the middle for me. Mm-hmm. And so while I love where it ends up and I like that feeling of like, this feels like the right resolution, how we got there didn't feel quite right until just the last moment. Mm -hmm. That being said, it's still a fascinating movie. The performances are tremendous. The amount of thought and care put into it is really great. And it's a movie. It's one of those movies that isn't bad, but it's swinging for the fences. It just doesn't quite work. Mm hmm. So it's a three and a half for me. I'm going to go with a two and a half. Okay. I, I love the performances. The art direction is great, but it's, it's, it's those missed opportunities. They could have done so much more. And maybe that's just like the inexperience here. Uh, even though the direction is fabulous. Yeah, it's two and a half. It's a two and a half. They're just, they're just too far into their heads with this one. Mm-hmm. They just are. And, you know. It didn't take long for them to figure out how to how to strike that balance. Mm-hmm. So it is what it is. All right, let's go from one dark fantasy world to another. Oh, okay. But a dark fantasy world that also has a heaping amount of fun, weird humor. Because mm-hmm. we're going to talk about a movie that I've only seen one time, but I remember falling completely in love with. Okay. We are going to watch The Fisher King. Well, okay, yeah, this one's been on my list for a while. I mean, you get Robin Williams, Mm -hmm. you get Jeff Bridges, Mm. but for the real interesting thing here, you get Terry Gilliam. Oh, okay. I I don't know how it holds up, but I remember when I seeing this, this being one of those movies that was just like, this is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just the story it's telling and the way it tells it. 
And I'm really, really hopeful that it still holds up mm -hmm. because I don't want that to be ruined for me at all. I'm excited. This may be like my sneaky pick for is this actually the best movie of the year? Okay. But we'll see. We'll have we'll have to decide. Mm. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.